0: I'd like to turn back to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to look uh, fairly loosely uh, at uh, part of this chapter uh, in the sense of broadening it beyond uh, the words uh, that Jesus was speaking. But I'll come to that shortly. We're going to look particularly at the section from verse 41, uh, the second section, although uh, what Jesus says before that is also pretty relevant to uh, our important and where it is in the passage. There's a saying that goes that a friend in need is uh, a pain in the neck. And uh, that is often the way that we think today uh, sometimes, isn't it? Because what we like doing in many ways, maybe not consciously, uh, and I'm sure that's a very harsh and cynical uh, summary of, of the thoughts of us, it's, it's, it's maybe just my own heart, truth be told, sometimes. But the, the truth is that very often in our lives, we wouldn't maybe articulate it quite as bluntly as that, but we just, we just really want to get on with life. And we just want to get on with life fairly unhindered. We don't really want to be terribly involved in people's issues and people's problems and, and difficulties. Uh, or if we do it, certainly, uh, in... in Uh, on our own terms and uh, we we just want to live a quiet life and you know there's nothing wrong with that Uh, there's nothing wrong with that the Bible speaks about that just getting on with our life and working quietly with our hands and it's a good thing to do isn't it and it's a good thing when everything goes quite smoothly for us and we're just moseying along we're just carrying along uh, kind of rather unperturbed by everything that may be happening around us can I give you an illustration? I mentioned this morning that I had a second driving illustration. I'm sorry. Very unoriginal. Don't have many uh, thoughts about illustrations. But driving seems to be one that I keep coming back to. But can, I, can you imagine you're on a holiday abroad, okay? and uh, It's a carefree holiday abroad. You don't have any worries of work or answering the phone or emails or hassles or problems. It's in the sun. You're enjoying you having a great time. You're with your friends. But you decide you hire a car one day and you decide to go out on your own in the car just for a bit of me time. And you're driving away and you're on your own in the car and you get lost. You get lost when you're driving. It's fine if it's in Scotland and you've got GPS. There's no GPS. I'm not saying where it is. I don't know. But there's no GPS because it spoils the story. Uh, But as you're trying to find your way back it starts to get dark and then that kind of darkening uh, you begin to get a little bit disorientated about where you are and you come to a junction and you say, I'm pretty sure I turn right here but because you're a bit disoriented and you're not thinking properly you just pull straight out but you forget that you're driving on the, the other side of the road and uh, you plunge straight into a car that's coming your way uh, head on a very serious accident but you're not injured but the person who was driving the other car is killed. And all of a sudden, your life completely turns upside down. Now, I don't know if this is right or not, but I'm just saying, for the sake of this illustration, you're taken into custody because of that. They don't know exactly the cause of it, but they know it's been a serious accident. You've caused the death of someone, and all of a sudden, you're incarcerated overnight until they find out what's happened. And all of a sudden, that kind of life of, being relaxed and minding your own business and doing things on your own and having a holiday and not having any care and worries in the world all of a sudden it's completely turned on its head and you are alone in a prison cell in a place you don't know anything about you don't know the language you don't know the culture and you desperately need help you know before you're really quite independent you're quite self-contained everything's going well for you and you're on holiday, and then all of a sudden you're desperately looking for someone who can uh, help you in this situation that you're in, and this doesn't seem to be happening. You're looking for someone who knows what's going on, who will help you understand the situation, and maybe help you get out of that situation. Now, that's a very imperfect illustration, and you can't uh, compare it uh, with uh, spiritual truth or spiritual reality, really. But the message of the Bible is always to bring us to that point where we see the great need that we have. You know, where we see the condition that we're in and where we seek help to be redeemed from that situation. In the same way that you would all of a sudden in a prison cell where you were desperately looking for help. And that is why I'm setting it in that context because I want to show uh, and God uh, wants us to know the importance of the kind of saviour that we have and we're going to come around to the theology of it shortly that he is both fully God and he's also fully human see because the the Bible makes clear to us and you know this but I'm going to put it in slightly different terms the Bible makes clear to us that we're in that position of being imprisoned, kind of, isn't it, spiritually without uh, a Redeemer, without Christ in our lives. That humanity and the reason I'm saying this is because sometimes I think it's very important for us to be able to share that with others. Uh, Rather than uh, what obviously we were looking at this morning, the accusations of uh, the student magazine against the Chalmers Church, which we mentioned this morning, which seemed to suggest that the Chalmers Church were a very high and mighty people who are standing in judgment over everybody else and looking down on their moral superiority. We never want to give that, and I don't believe for a moment that Chalmers Church gives that impression, but we don't for a moment want to give that impression of ourselves because the reality is every one of us without Christ is guilty, uh, in a sense as we saw this morning, guilty before God. And why are we guilty? Yes, we are lawbreakers, Okay. Some people would find that very difficult to comprehend what that means or would find it very legalistic. So we must point them to the reality that we are lawbreakers of God's law of love. That's what, we are, that's what we are breakers of. And that's why this greatest commandment that's mentioned from verse 34 to 40 is significant in where it's placed before Jesus claiming both to be the Son of God and the Son of Man, which we'll come to in a moment. Uh, it's the law of love that people have broken. It's, that is the summation of all of the law of God. It is that we have uh, not loved the Lord our God with our heart, with our soul, and with our mind, and we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We're culpable because we've replaced it. What have we replaced it with? With self love. So God has been abandoned, and we still love. But self-love is first, and God's love doesn't come into it, neither necessarily, and in the right place does their love for one another. But we very often don't, I think, appreciate that. And uh, uh, we, I, I feel that sometimes we can be very negative in the way that we express these things uh, to people. And, and it's right, it's a dire condition. But people live a, a, a lot of people live their lives in a very carefree manner. Um, and what I'm trying to say is that I think a lot of people live on the fumes of God's love. You see, we can talk about the wretchedness and the brutality and the selfishness and the greed and the evil and the wickedness and the uh, brutality of this world, and all of these things are true. But for ordinary people, a lot of the times they are simply living on the fumes of God's love. The kind of, the broken reflection of a perfect universe that we live in here. People are living in a kind of, under God's, what theologians would call his common grace. They're living in the knowledge, well, not in the knowledge maybe, but they're living in, in, uh, in the rays of that common grace of God. Under the protective patience and compassion of a God who wants them to realize Where they are. See, I don't necessarily think sometimes we would argue with people and say, well, you know, really, deep down you're miserable, aren't you? And you're having a rotten life. And uh, there's a great hole in your life. I think for a lot of people, there's not necessarily that. Or they certainly don't sense it. They're just going on in life quite happily. And they're kind of basking in this. You know, in the same way as as the illustration at the beginning of someone on holiday, not really thinking about what's going on around them, not really thinking about eternity or reality, just kind of basking in God's common grace and not really thinking terribly much about it. Until we can focus people's desperate need and their desperate lostness, uh, they will never genuinely uh, seek saviour, And the reality is that uh, somehow, prayerfully and, and with the, obviously uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, we need to re- them to recognize that the breaking of God's law is the breaking of his law of love, putting him first, and it's the breaking of a law of love towards one another. Because hell in reality will be the absence of even God's common grace which people reflect or uh, kind of uh, bask in, in, in this life. It will be whatever else it will be. And it does, the Bible doesn't say much about, other than giving us illustrations. It will be a relational darkness. That's what hell will be. It will be a, relation, a place of relational darkness where even the common grace of God will have gone. And all the things that people enjoy, the family, the celebrations, the love, the marriages, the births, Uh, the jobs, the the parties, the satisfaction, that even the broken reflections of God's love will have gone. And the patience and the grace of God seeking them to come to himself will have gone. And so what we need to see and recognize for ourselves and others, I guess, is the reality of being lost and the reality of of being lost in a lost eternity, in a hellish eternity eternity without christ and when we recognize and we see that particular condition that we're in and we see when people see our losses one of the the greatest weaknesses of our lives today is that people aren't convicted of their lostness and of their need people don't think they need a savior i know we can be you know we can be as theological with them and we can argue with them apologetically and all of these things but people don't see their need of a savior and so we're longing for people to see their need of a saviour. And when they do see their need, then they are going to see they need someone who understands their situation and someone who can help them. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And my aim tonight, briefly, is to give you more confidence in Jesus, more courage to share Jesus, and to communicate more with him as an absolutely sufficient and good saviour, because you see in this passage here, this second from verse forty-one, if you look at to verse forty-five, uh, I'm not going to get into great detail uh, in the exegesis of this passage, but Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders, and uh, he's having this ongoing dialogue with them, and uh, he very briefly and very quickly is correcting their wrong view and their wrong impression of the Messiah. You know, I've said this a lot here, and you know this, that the Jewish people of the day were looking for a political Messiah, someone who would be a son of David, who would come through the throne of David, and who would uh, reign on the throne of David in Jerusalem, and would... uh, Make sure that the Romans uh, were expunged from the nation, that they would bring back the glory to Israel. And there, there was probably some spiritual aspect to that as well, uh, a redemptive aspect. But it was generally a political Messiah, a political king that they, uh, they saw. And, and part of that was taken from this messianic psalm, Psalm 110. We're going to sing that at the end. And they, they recognized it as a messianic psalm. It was speaking about this uh, king who would come uh, for the son of David who would reign on the throne uh, of God forever and they were right it was a messianic psalm it was speaking about Jesus Uh, but of course they didn't attribute it to Jesus so this is Jesus giving a quick opportunity to uh, correct their wrong impression that uh, it wasn't just a son of David who would be the Messiah but the son of David would also be the son of God and the son of God would be Jesus So we have this uh, Jesus saying to them, you know, you know, they talk about the Messiah as the son of David. and Yeah, they they say that's right. Uh, And then Jesus says, but how then by the spirit does David call him Lord or God, Adonai? How does he call him God? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hands until I put your enemies at your feet. Given this place of great significance at the right hand of the father. And they had no answer. They didn't say any more words to him at that point. And in and, and that small cameo, we have Jesus... And he says it again and again in different places, of course. And there's lots of evidence, and Tom spoke about that, and, and I've spoken about... Lots of evidence of Jesus being God. But in, in, in this small section, he's just reaffirming that, that Jesus, the Messiah, did come from the line of David. So he was a, a person, he was a man, and he came and was born of a virgin... Uh, but he is also Son of God. He is also God in the flesh. And that is the whole of the New, New Testament teaching is all geared and all revolves around that. And that's absolutely vital. We know that that's what the New Testament teaches, don't we? Why do we know that? Because that's what led to the crucifixion. Jesus wasn't crucified for any other reason than jealousy for the religious leaders because he claimed to be God. Popularity and other things came into it as well. But it was because he in their eyes was a blasphemer that he was sent to the cross. So what I want to say just for a few minutes is that this truth of Jesus being fully man, fully human, and fully God is really important for us. Really important. Because it means he's the right kind of saviour. We're talking about being in prison, the right person helping you to get out. Well, he's the right kind of person. So, looking at the person of Christ, he's our rescuer from our situation. We are lost, we are sinners before a holy God. We are separated, we are blind, we are imprisoned, we are guilty. What do we need? Well, we need, in the first place, we need someone who understands, don't you? If you're in a bad situation, if you're in prison in a foreign country, you need someone who understands. And spiritually, we need someone who understands our our condition spiritually. And sometimes you we think, well, I think a lot of people anyway. A lot of people, I pastor, will say, well, I, I'm not sure if God's really the one who cuts it for me. He's just so great and so awesome, and he's so far away, and he's the, for many people, he's the divine watchmaker. But he, he, I can't see him, I can't touch him, and he's even fearsome to me. And people can get frustrated with the. Uh, God and think that he's not really the kind of God who understands them and who helps them. you know not frustrating at being you're speaking, you think you're speaking to someone who doesn't understand you, you're a call centre and no one understands what you're saying, it's so frustrating. You've got a simple problem knowing but this is real spiritual problems and you maybe even pray to God and you think but he's so far away he doesn't understand, he's got no really conception of who I am. That is why He's the son of David. That's why that is so absolutely important. Because God becomes flesh. And God then understands. You know, we're we're beginning to see that through Ruth and through Daniel, this Messiah who's going to come. And that is hugely significant. For this reason, the writer to Hebrews says, he had to be made like them, fully human. In every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. So he becomes fully human without sin. You think, well, is he fully human if he's without sin? He's more than fully human without sin. We're less human because we sin. He's more human. He's perfect humanity because he doesn't sin. So he's the son of David. And so when he is born and when he comes into this world, he enters new experiences and new relationships. He has a human body and a reasonable soul. And this Jesus uh, is someone then who understands you and me tonight. Because he's experienced pain and temptation and poverty and loneliness and uh, being loved. In a human sense, and being hated in a human sense. He's tasted death. Uh, he knows what it is to be a son, what it is to be a brother, a friend, a neighbour. He can relate to Mother's Day. He knows what it was to have enemies, to rejoice, to cry, to be tired, to be hungry. He understands fully human, yet without sin. So, you know, we come to not some kind of distant clockmaker winding up the world far away from us. We come to this Christ. Who is able to under? We go to a saviour who understands us. So when you come to God, when you come to God or come to Christ, uh, come to God through Christ or come to the Son of God, come to the divine Son, you can be assured in your imagination that He doesn't have glazed eyes, that He isn't scanning His watch as you come to Him with your meaning uh, what you feel are small and insignificant issues. He's not shrugging his divine shoulders. And he's not looking at you thinking, well, what are you on about? I don't understand. He's not like that. That's not the God he is. And that's why uh, him being fully human is so staggeringly important to us. But you know, more than that, uh, I need someone when I'm struggling. Not only who understands is a great thing, but I need someone. And isn't this important? I need someone who can help. It's all very well of someone who can understand us. But we need someone who can help us. You know, if I'm in a prison in a foreign country, I might have someone in the prison cell with me who fully understands what I'm going through and who empathizes and sympathizes because they're in the same place. But they can't help me because they're within the prison bars as well. They're within the system. Now, as a pastor, that's one of my great frustrations. A great frustration is that I know... uh, I understand people's needs. I don't understand everyone's needs. Uh, but I do understand the pains and the doubts and the fears and the struggles and the difficulties and the bitternesses and the need for forgiveness. I know. But I can't help. There's so many people that I can't help. Because you just, you can come alongside and you can empathize, but you, we make poor saviors as people. Sometimes we try to be little saviors and we try to make everyone's problems go away. But we can't do, we can't control them, we can't be in control of their lives. And people generally are in this place of great isolation. So we need a saviour who can help. So the greatest thing about my task, my work, is I can point people to Jesus saying, not only uh, is this is the Christ who understands your need, but this is the Christ who can help you in your need. That is the wonderful thing about uh, God being, uh, Jesus Christ being fully human and also fully divine. And when uh, we speak about him being fully divine, uh, we mean that he is God. And uh, he's someone who can help. There's a few things, just briefly, I want to say about that. Uh, He has got the motive to help us. Okay? Uh, He's God who has the motive to help. He is longing to restore and heal broken relationships between heaven and earth. His justice... Get this now, it's really important. His justice can't ignore our guilt, but his love simply can't ignore our plight. So you've got this divine lover of our souls who knows that justice demands that guilt be paid for, but in his love he's moved to pay the price, to act to come into our world so the very humanity of Jesus is him coming into our experience because of our need so we have, he has motive but he also has ability so you know he's a good saviour because he has ability to say he's fully God and many people say, I think we struggle all the time thinking that Jesus can't really help me that he's an impotent saviour or even a disinterested saviour. He has ability. He is the one who bears the weight of our human guilt, who balances the scales of divine justice, and who silences the demand of the grave. The insatiable, hungry grave he silences because he has the ability as the mediator between God and man. That's why he must be God. That's why he must be man. First Timothy 2, 4 and 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. The man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for his people. There's only one mediator. You know, a mediator must represent both parties. And he is able to represent God and he's able to represent humanity. And he is fully man and he is fully God. One person, now there's mystery within all this, I know that, we know that, and there's biblical theologians know that, but we accept that because that's what the Bible teaches. There's this one person, there's one person who has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, and in his great work. He hides, in, in most instances anyway, he hides that divine nature. He doesn't empty himself of it. He doesn't dive, divulge, get rid of his divinity. He doesn't uh, pour it out at that level. It's hidden. He's always God. He's always omnipotent. He's always omnipresent. He's always sovereign. But he becomes poor. And he hides that divinity. It was, we see that a little bit in the uh, Transfiguration where the, the, the glory of his divinity is pulled back. And we see it, and he shines with all his glory. Uh, but he, he, he hides that in order to be fully human and to be dependent on the Holy Spirit and to give up his wealth in order to be poor, to be humble. That's what Philippians 2 speaks about. It speaks about God. We mentioned that this morning, being humbled uh, uh, for us. And there's a great picture of that paradox which we struggle with. You know, because we, we ask lots of questions about his human nature and his divine nature and uh, what did he know and what he didn't know and, and what could he do and what could he couldn't do. Uh, and there's, there's mystery within that. But it's that paradox is beautifully uh, laid out for us. And very often these theological conundrums or paradoxes are just revealed in... in in physical and practical ways for us in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 8, where he's in the boat. It's a great picture of it, of his being fully human and then fully divine. He's in the boat. He's exhausted. He's asleep. He's been working hard all day. He's been answering questions. He's been preaching. And he's exhausted. In the middle of the storm, he's, he's asleep and he's exhausted. And the disciples say, "Look, do you not care that we drown? And he wakes up and he stands up and he stills the wind and the waves. Asleep and sovereign. Tired, omnipotent. Isn't that a great way that the Bible helps us, that a child can understand the paradox of uh, this reality. So he has ability, and of course he also has for us qualifications. He's qualified to be our Savior because he represents us and uh, he is the one who is a suitable sacrifice. Romans 5 consequently just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people, one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. 1 Corinthians 15, so it's written the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life giving spirit. So we have someone who represents us and can represent us because he becomes one of us. So he can represent us. He's a suitable representative. But he's also a suitable substitute because he can pay the price in a way that we can never do. Uh, he lived a life we couldn't live as a perfect human being. So what What did Jesus do? What did he do that we couldn't do? He loved the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, and strength and his neighbor as himself. Do you want to know what that looks like? Do you want to know what the perfect grace looks like? What the perfect Christian should look like? That's what it looks like. It looks like Jesus. It's as simple as that. So he's the lamb without blemish. See, what all the Old Testament points towards this lamb without blemish, infinitely satisfying divine justice. Can you see that? That it's uh, his perfect life, but not just his perfect life as a human being, his perfect life as God, which is sacrificed, and uh, which in his death, which he gives himself over to, uh, opens up the way for any who will trust in him to come to faith. And then he's uh, suitable or uh, someone who uh, can help uh, in the sense that he is also an example and uh, our pattern. Okay, so recognizing him as fully God and fully man, as a suitable savior, he is a savior, he's a redeemer, but he also is more than that because as a person, as a human being, who lives out the law of God perfectly, he becomes for us both uh, a, a redeemer an enabler, Uh, an example and a pattern. So you've got this great truth from uh, 1 John 2 verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. That's a very high standard, isn't it? Or 2 Corinthians 3, and we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who's the Spirit. Or famously, Romans 8:29, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So we find that uh, Jesus is the law keeper. When we understand what the law keeper looks like, we fall on our knees to worship him And to ask him for the grace to also live like him. To be forgiving and compassionate and loving and strong and courageous. And also, can I say, probably most importantly, as it follows on from this morning, humble. Philippians 2 speaks about that. Most of you, if you have time, go home and read that who thought not equality with God was something to be grasped, but who emptied himself. uh, And he did that. He humbled himself, taking on the very nature, the very form of a servant, uh, to put the needs of others first. So we are most Christ-like when we put Christ, God, and the needs of others first. That is a hugely demanding task. Hugely demanding. Selfishness, sweats out of every single pore of our body. And he comes to turn that on its head and say, this is not all about you. Life is about God and worshipping him and serving and loving others. And that is what I hope you will take from this theologically significant and important truth that God, uh, Jesus Christ, is fully human and fully God that we will see as we rise from here and sometimes look in the mirror of Scripture to see the ugliness of our own hearts and sometimes the ugliness of the day in which we will go into tomorrow. With all its tension and all its grief and maybe sometimes all its joy also, that we will have confidence in Jesus. I really don't want anyone to be a Sunday Christian. I also don't want anyone to be a Christian who's testified to Christ as their saviour, but it doesn't really believe that, and who can't appreciate Christ as Lord, um, or who sees God as a distant watchmaker. May it be that this truth reminds us again uh, of the confidence we can have in Him, the courage to live for Him, and can I also say the, the vitality of communicating with Him on a day-to-day basis? You know, He is. He understands. He knows. He wants to hear us. He is divine. He is able to save. He is able to help us in our need. He will not necessarily give us what we want, but he will answer our prayers and his sovereignty will work through our prayers. And we need to have confidence to be speaking to him, sharing with him, going to him, looking to him, knowing that he understands, knowing that he was fully human, knowing that he remains fully human and that he is, will always be human and divine. And he never never will ditch that ever again. And the, the future that we look forward to will be a future where we will see Jesus and when we will have our bodies renewed in likeness to his glorious body also. It's a great, I hope, practical truth for us to rise from and live our lives, which I hope you will do. Let's pray. Father God, help us to understand you better, to understand you more clearly, to know that even... Uh, Right in the the heart of the Old Testament, uh, you prophesied through uh, King David uh, this great truth of your lordship, of your messiahship being one uh, that was uh, gloriously unique, uh, that you are human and know us and understand us and uh, have experienced life among us. And yet, in coming alongside, you're not a weak and impotent and poor and helpless God, our Savior, but you're a great sovereign God. And may these wonderful, uh, century-old truths of the Orthodox tradition of the Christian faith, may they uh, hit our hearts and souls fresh tonight like they were just revealed for the first time because they remain ever living and ever-present and ever-vibrant because they are the truths of this living, great and gracious Savior. Forgive us, Lord, when we think you're impotent or we think you don't care or you're far away or you're too unapproachable to pray to or you don't understand. Lord, forgive us for these things and forgive us for maybe asking for the wrong things when you promise wisdom and you promise grace and you promise courage and you promise um the ability uh, to move forward each day in your strength help us uh, to know that to experience that and bless the young people tonight as they'll meet and look at this passage together again and, and some of the implications for it in their lives bless them we pray we thank you for them for their young lives and for the future that we pray and hope they have As followers of Jesus, bless them and go before us all for Jesus' sake. Amen.